Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week and occasionally talk to you, Larry Ellison. Hi, my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and welcome to our recording today on January 9th, 2019, National Static Electricity Day. So while you're listening to the rundown, go scuff your feet on the carpet and see if you can shock yourself on a doorknob. Joining me today is my man about storage and, well, my boss, Hefe, Stephen Foskett. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Howdy. It's good to be here. All right. Um, we uh, took last week off. You probably saw a great video from Rich Stoffolino telling you about all the great things we've got coming up this year, because let's face it, nobody wants to release any news at the beginning of the year. They're all on vacation, but thankfully they all came back and we got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. I don't know if you've heard this or not, but it's CES this week. Lots of cool stuff coming out. But Speaking first cool stuff coming out. Um, Roomba oh. just invaded my office. That was pretty <laughs> funny. And then he, he's, he heard that I was on the thing and he turned around and zoop right back out. Oh, we'll talk more about IoT and voice commands in just a moment. But right now, I want to get to some exciting news. Amazon bought somebody. Um, TechCrunch is reporting that Amazon has a acquired the Israeli disaster recovery startup CloudEndure for an estimated $200 million. So pocket change to, uh, to Jeff Bezos. Uh, CloudEndure is unique in the space in that they offer DR for the cloud by providing continuous backup and mitigation between clouds and private data centers. Currently, CloudEndure is, supports AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud for the moment, but who knows if that's gonna survive the acquisition or not. Um, will this be a continuing refinement on Amazon's hybrid cloud play that they've been touting since AWS reInvent? Or do you think that this is gonna re, uh, remain a multi-cloud uh, solution? Well, um, I'm not sure what's going on here, I've gotta say. Um, it's a little puzzling because frankly, Cloud Indoor's entire uh, pitch focused on multi-cloud. I mean, if you go to their website even right now, uh, they've got a pretty good website, honestly. But um, you know, you look at it and you look at what they're selling, and it's really all about multi-cloud. Yeah, there's a disaster recovery angle to it, but um, the whole thing is basically any source, any application, any target. I don't understand this. Now, um, the reason I say I don't understand it is because um, in order to understand it, you have to accept that Amazon is going to be totally all in on multi-cloud and that's not understandable. So I'm not sure what they're doing here. Yeah, this this only makes sense for Amazon to buy if they're trying to take down a leader in a market that they're just gonna turn into a service later on. You know, check here to back this workload up. It's gonna add three cents per hour to your bill or something. And then, you know, for them, they, they get a little extra revenue, but they also don't have to worry about this service becoming prime time. And honestly, allowing some kind of strange um, uh, left-handed uh, migration between clouds. I would never do it that way, but you, you never know. People can get creative when they don't want to pay money. You know, why would Amazon want a platform that promises any source, any application, any target? I just don't get it. Um, now, it's cool technology, um, and it would be really cool if it wasn't any source and any target. I mean, still, any application, that's cool. Um, maybe they're seeing this as a way to move from hybrid into AWS, or maybe they're seeing this in association with their hybrid plans as a way to migrate between you know, AWS hybrid or on-premises versus AWS in the cloud. Um, cool. I guess we can drop the mic. <laughs> All right, Stephen, have you got any stories coming up about Akamai? Yeah, let's talk about this. So um, Akamai, Akamai, 
Akamai has acquired uh, Janrain. So um, they uh, scooped up this identity management provider. Um, the Janrain Identity Cloud helps uh, manage user access to online services, does some nifty user authentication stuff by analyzing their location and their device and trying to see if they're allowed to get in. Um, Tom, uh, at, at Security Field Day um, in December, we heard uh, Cisco Duo. Um, how does this compare and uh, how does this play into the overall security space? So it's uh, really, it, it's a facet of what Duo already did. And I wrote a piece about Duo for uh, Gestalt IT. Uh, I believe it, it was published uh, last week while you guys were all on vacation. But in short, Duo takes the idea of two-factor authentication and extends those factors to be more important than just your thumbprint and knowing a PIN code from your token. Um, you know, you can challenge devices. You can make sure that people's mobile phones haven't been compromised. Um, but the thing to me is that Duo did all this originally and then they built a platform around it all right so we can we can have hooks that go into everything and we can we can do challenge response to other things it sounds like that that maybe janrain was on this track before they got grabbed up by akamai my biggest question is why does a cdn need two-factor authentication now to be completely fair somebody said the same thing about cisco when they bought duo what does a networking company need with a two-factor company so no, I think that's got to be the answer, right? I mean, Akamai doesn't want to be a CDN. No, and you're absolutely right. And I think that maybe they're wanting to branch that out, or maybe they're wanting to integrate this technology. This is something that Cisco and Duo were talking about, uh, maybe integrate it into authentication for devices in a framework so that you can guarantee that nobody's going to install a rogue router in your system. Now, there are other ways to do it, but sometimes having a backup is kind of nice. Well, and, and think about it too, that um, you know one of, uh, one of Akamai's biggest competitors these days is Cloudflare. And Cloudflare is aggressively moving out of being just you know, a cache for your website and into all sorts of, um, you know, uh, well, for lack of a better term, function as a service um, items. And stuff like this really does fit into that. And maybe Akamai is seeing this as a path forward for the old uh, gray lady of the internet. Yeah, it's entirely possible because let's face it, there's not a whole lot of money in being a caching service anymore. You gotta move on to new and different things. Speaking of new and different things, Stephen, are you ready for your quantum computing fix? I have been quantumed indeed. Ooh. Well, IBM unveiled the new IBM Q System 1, which is a 20-qubit quantum computer. It has improved stability, meaning that resets that used to take days are now down to hours. Hmm. IBM didn't announce sales of the device, but it will be available for use through the cloud, which is something that we're hearing a lot about, uh, cloud quantum computing versus on-premises quantum computing. Uh, companies and research institutes that are interested in exploring experimental programming on IBM's quantum computer can join the IBM Q network research community being launched in partnership with Fermilab, ExxonMobil, and CERN. Um, it is commercially available, but at this point, it's a skunkworks research project, right? I mean, trying to get this thing working in your enterprise would be a huge quantum leap. I can forgive you for making that joke. It was, uh, you know, probable that that's where you would go. Um, yeah. You know, the interesting thing is that IBM, in a way, is playing catch up here a little bit to D-Wave. I mean, they've been offering commercial uh, quantum systems for um, six, seven years now. But, of course, none of them actually do anything productive. So <laughs> that's sort of the problem. Now, one thing I want to call out, and I, I, I'm talking to you, Mr. Viewer, go look 
at this thing. It is probably the most beautiful computer system I have seen since the launch of the Trashcan Mac Pro. Um, it is really remarkable. I mean, it looks, it reminds me of like the old Cray systems or something. I mean, IBM is clearly trying to make a statement with this. And uh, the statement they're trying to make is the exact opposite of the D-Wave statement. They're trying to say, this thing is real. This thing is here. It's worth focusing on. I mean, this is, you know, front and center in the corporate glass house. Like I could totally see, see uh, you know, big companies buying this thing in order to have it be visible from the reception desk. You know, it's that cool looking. And to be able to say, yes, over here, we have a 20 qubit quantum computer. Oh, you know, I mean, that that's that's totally amazing. Now, uh, the, the, the downside is that basically everything they're talking about is something that's already been talked about. Um, IBM has been promising this system since uh, for at least two years. Um, the system is obviously not quite available, available. Um, and even the cloud stuff, um, IBM launched the Q experience um, last year. And I got to say, um, if you haven't tried that out, um, you, that's another thing that you should go immediately drop everything and go take a look at. Because basically, IBM's got a web service where anyone can get in there and try some quantum computing. And already, um, you know, a lot of people have done it. IBM claims that, uh, oh, what's the number? Um, you know, 80,000 users have tried out the Q experience. Um, and that's probably 79,999 plus me. Um, it's pretty neat um, to be able to say I'm doing stuff with quantum stuff. But frankly, you're not really doing anything practical. Uh, they also claim that they've had academic papers run using the platform. I'm not so sure about that. Um, at this point, quantum computing still does nothing. Um, and that's unfortunately the fact. Um, we're investing in it. IBM is trying to make it real. I mean, really, hats off to them. I don't see their competitors doing this stuff. But um, uh, apart from like a really cool thing to look at and, and talk about and, and fuss over, I, I don't know that there's there yet. Yeah, I think you're right. Quantum computing is a solution in search of a problem. And until someone writes a killer app, for quantum computing, nobody's going to take it seriously. So those of you out there who want to go out and try the IBM Q experience, you could be the person that writes the solitaire for quantum computing. Get on that. All right. Um, we got to have a legal news case because it's always legal news in IT now. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission's case against Qualcomm kicked off on Friday. In case you missed it, Qualcomm has been accused of anti-competitive patent licensing on mobile chips, which is forcing companies to buy their chips in exchange for licensing. Um, and of course, because it's a tech company, the rates were inflated. Uh, Qualcomm has already been hit with a record 997 million euro fine in the EU, and they have a never-ending patent dispute with Apple. We keep hearing about that quite a bit. Um, if Qualcomm has to lower their licensing rates and finds a way to disentangle all of that from chip sales, will we see any change downstream for the enterprise? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think this is really all about uh, devices. Um, you know, but really what we're getting at here, is the, the root of the problem here is um, the question of, you know, on, on the, the Qualcomm side, does Qualcomm have the right to charge whatever they want for the pass massive patent portfolio that they absolutely do have? And are they allowed to tie that to product sales? And on the other hand, um, 
if they are allowed to charge a lot of money and tie it to product sales, is that negatively impacting the rest of the industry? So you mentioned Apple. Uh, you know, we've also got China. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on here. The EU um, and 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 quantum, you know, runs the risk of being trampled as um, you know, 5G is rolled out as, you know, more and more companies are, are you know, investing in their own ARM designs and, of course, their own support chips. Um, you know, I, I think quantum is scared to, for their lives. And I think that they, you know, they're, 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 they're on a knife edge. They could either continue to be a dominant force in the industry or not. Um, I'm much more interested in that question than does this make my phone cheaper? And, and honestly, the answer is, is that it won't because you got to pay for that somehow or another. And when you are a sole source manufacturer for a company like Apple, the day that you piss off Tim Cook or anybody else in that supply chain is the day you go out of business. I mean, uh, was I think it was the iPhone 8, it's the 8 uh, or the 7, was almost entirely sourced from Qualcomm modems. Mm -hmm. And then when the 10 came out, they said, uh-uh, we got to change this. So they started going with some Intel modems. Well, the Intel one sucked. They did, but you know, when the uh, 10S came out and the 10R, all you can get is Intel modems now because of the tiff between Intel and Qualcomm. And so, I mean, they they suck, but they suck universally for everybody else. It's kind of like the Spectre meltdown problem. If everybody is operating to the same level of suck, then that's the new normal. Um, I don't think that Qualcomm is going to be able to hold out much longer because, yeah, it's great if you have all the IP in the world and refuse to license it until you get paid appropriately. But if nobody's buying your product, you're not getting paid at all. Yeah, exactly. And um, and and as I said, I mean, Qualcomm really did do a lot of the pioneering work or companies that Qualcomm bought or, you know, but the point is that 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 they deserve to get paid for their work. Um, but the industry uh, needs more than a monoculture, especially when it comes to telecom and uh, telecom chips, LTE chips. Um, and frankly, uh, my feeling is that if Qualcomm can't straighten this out and figure out how to play in this market, uh, Chinese companies are going to do it for them. And then there's going to be no um, arguments um, possible. Uh, you know, if, 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 well, 5G um, comes along and Qualcomm is not a major player, um, you know, that's going to be the end of them. So it really is kind of an existential crisis for them. Um, yeah. Let's turn now to um, the uh, big news coming up at the RSA conference. So um, the news has leaked um, that the NSA will announce an open source uh, reverse engineering cool tool, Pedra. Um, at RSA conference, um, what do you think about this thing, Tom? I mean, you're the you're the security field day guy. What do you think about uh, the NSA doing a uh, reverse engineering tool? Well, it's kind of interesting that that a lot of people are basically saying that the NSA is open sourcing something they've been using for years. What's the play? I mean, mm -hmm. is the NSA suddenly on a goodwill tour? I mean, they they've been getting beaten up and taking black eyes for the last five years. I mean, when you go back and you look at all the stuff that happened when Snowden released all those information, all that documentation, people started digging in. They found back doors. They found all kinds of, of sharing agreements that the NSA has with with uh, carriers in the space. So what now the NSA is going to come out and go, hey, we're we're releasing Ghidra's is for free and you guys can use it. Um, is, is Ghidra better than the other tools that are out there to reverse engineer? Um, executables and things like that. I don't know. Open source means that eventually it'll get at least to par. But 
what are they hoping for? Are they are they hoping that that hackers are going to take it and use it to fight the other bad guys? Are they hoping that that they're going to are they going to uh, stream in the changes that people are making to Ghidra to make their tools more effective internally so that they can um, allegedly spy on us? I, I don't have a good answer. I mean, good step, guys, but but I I, I it's um I, I don't feel like you're being completely altruistic here. And well, there's another angle too, and that was brought up by one of the Twitter folks um, when this news broke. Um, I, I don't remember who it was. Sorry, uh, but the the question was, uh, I think it was Jeff Wilson. Um, the question was, what about the fact that the NSA is basically competing with a commercial system, and in fact, an expensive commercial system? I mean, this is a a, a trend in the industry to have an open source um, upstart that totally tramples over um, an existing system. So IDA is um, the one that people are comparing uh, Hydra to. Um, is it uh, comparable? No, apparently it's not nearly as good, but of course that's based on, you know, kind of hearsay. But um, as Tom points out, soon it might be as good. And, um, you know, is this a case where the US government is actually undermining a commercial product? Well, as uh, producer Rich Straffolino points out, that this is not uncommon for the NSA to open source uh, software. They have something like 35 open projects right now. So um, maybe it's the, the the line that they're taking. And you're right, Stephen, this would be kind of worrisome if the U.S. federal government suddenly decided that they wanted to put IDA out of business. Or even if that's not their intention, we know that's what's going to happen because people are just going to go, I can go download the NSA version for free. Who cares if it doesn't have a pretty graphical user interface and I got to get down and dirty with some config files every once in a while. Yeah. So what's, what's the, what's the long-term gain? What's the payoff, I guess, is, is what people are starting to ask. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Now we come to the most dark and dismal part of this show. We're going to talk about storage for a minute. Um, the IEEE Spectrum has reported that on the state of MAMR versus HAMR drives. Ooh, acronym soup. Western Digital has pledged to have these microwave-assisted magnetic recording drives available this year with densities up to 16 terabytes, along with a, an increase to 40 terabytes by 2025. Seagate, the other 800-pound gorilla in this market, um, is championing heat-assisted magnetic recording. That would be the hammer. And uh, they're going to be 20 plus terabytes capable by next year. Stephen, can you break down the differences between Mammer and Hammer? And do you think that one has an edge over the other? Yeah, there's there's actually a cool angle to this story. And this is it. I mean, basically, in, in the hard drive space, um, you know, we've come down to basically two monsters fighting it out. I guess this is when we should have made a Ghidra and Godzilla reference. But I, that was a previous story. Um it, you know, basically what we've got is we've got Seagate who rejected Mammer um, and focused on Hammer and has convinced the entire industry that this is the way forward. And Western Digital was basically, you know, kind of like at the side being like, hey, uh, we don't have one of them. And then said, you know what? I think Mammer can work. Seagate says no. Um, Western Digital says yes. And apparently <laughs> Seagate is now busy saying, oh, oh. Uh, I wonder if we can actually make Mammer work. Uh, you know, it's it, there's a lot of uh, mud being thrown back and forth. I mean, basically, the problem here is that, um, you know, when it comes to hard drives, you're talking about a mechanical thing. Here, I brought a, um, a visual aid. Hard drive, mechanical thing. <laughs> the little thingy has to go back and forth while the other thingy goes round and round. Um, the problem is that the little thingy that goes back and forth 
um, has to basically flip magnetic bits. It's not really mechanical in terms of what's happening, but it really is uh, mechanically related. And we're reaching the end of the ability of us to reliably and efficiently and uniformly and predictably flip um, little magnetic thingies. And the other big problem is this. Um, SSDs don't have these problems. Um, already, we're looking at SSDs that are bigger than hard drives. Um, you know, Seagate and Western Digital are saying we're going to get to 20 terabytes, uh, you know, pretty quickly here. Um, and the, you know, the SSD makers with four, you know, uh, QLC are saying, yeah, where's the big deal there? You know, I mean, it's it, it's a really an existential crisis here for spinning media versus uh, versus flash media. We need a way forward. Um, you know, Hammer and Mammer, both of them. Basically, what they're doing is they're melting the bits on the drive in a specific spot so that you can flip that one and have it not spontaneously flip back. They both do basically the same thing, and they're both entirely irrelevant to buyers because buyers only care uh, what's the total capacity of the drive. Um, if 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 Seagate says Hammer works and is reliable and gives me a 20 terabyte drive, people are going to buy it. If Western Digital says Mammer works and is reliable and gives me a 20 terabyte drive, people are going to buy it. No one cares. What they care about is that it's backed by one of these two companies, that it's affordable, and that it works. And what these companies care about is this, that they're not getting eaten up by QLC NAND. Now, the good news for both Seagate and Western Digital is both of them are actively involved in SSD. And frankly, in the long term, uh, this is uh, basically the last gasp of spinning media. Eventually, we'll just walk away from it. So essentially, this is HD DVD versus Blu-ray, knowing that streaming services are going to cripple everybody in the next couple yeah. of years. Yeah, and like that, I mean, people still have, you know, you know, high definition players and people don't actually really care what the underlying technology is, um, but it's increasingly irrelevant. Yeah, cool. And like I said, luckily for these two companies, they've got bets on the other horse as well. And so, you know, once this spinning stuff doesn't work anymore, Western Digital and Seagate are still going to be big players in the storage industry. All right. Well, All Stephen. Right. So, Tom, let me talk to you about a different topic here. Um, okay. We... Uh, as we mentioned earlier with my uh, my friend Roomba, um, we've got increasing IoT presence in the world. Um, I was looking at the CES announcements. Oh my gosh, did you see the video of Google with the Google Assistant ride at CES? It's like mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. Okay, go look that up if you're if you're if you're watching this, go check it out. So Google expected that they're going to have Assistant available on a billion devices by the end of this month. A billion devices. That's, I mean, that's more than I have in my house. I am really impressed, Google. Um, Amazon said that they're in on 100 million devices. Um, everything, everything's getting this kind of technology. Given that this stuff is inevitably appearing everywhere and saturating, saturating households, what are we going to do? Who's responsible to secure this? Um, Tom, just, just talk to me. 
Well, it's funny because I just placed an order for my Echo-enabled toilet so that we'll be ready to go for later. I'll, I will write a competing blog post to your amazing toilet blog post as well. Um, but speaking of which, I actually wrote about this today because this was a huge point of contention for the delegates at Security Field Day because there are some people who believe that IoT everywhere is a huge security risk. There are some that say, oh, it can't be a security risk because the devices can't be hacked. Okay, just because a device is simple doesn't mean it's not hackable. And if you don't believe me, um, if you weren't all listening to this on your headphones, I'd trigger your smart speaker to go buy a book on Amazon. And if you didn't put a pin on your account, I could confirm it and charge you about 50 bucks. Now, I wouldn't do that because I'm a nice guy, unless you're Larry Ellison, in which case you're ordering a billion of those, buddy. But the, the point of fact is, is that... Knowing that everything is around us and listening is a huge security risk because, I mean, this is a thought exercise I had in my blog post today. Let's just say that we could gain access to the Echo. Everyone's like, well, how does the Echo know when you use the trigger word? Well, that's easy. It's always listening. It's just discarding all of that audio data to uh, to Dev Null when it doesn't hear the trigger word after 10, 15 seconds. But, but what if I could starting it? That's the question, though. I don't know because I don't have access to the device, but what happens if I'm able to get root to the operating system of the speaker and I can capture that stream file? Do you think that that might be valuable? Do you think knowing that there was an Amazon Echo Dot on the president's desk that I could hack would be a valuable thing to do? Now, I almost guarantee you the Secret Service wouldn't let one of those things within 100 miles of the White House if they could get away with it. But the possibility exists, and that's the problem. Thing. I mean, you know, you got, you know, you've got Siri, you've got, um, you know, Google Assistant on the phone, uh, and I, and I will tell you, I don't have to worry about my toaster listening to me right now. In five years, that may not be an option. I've got a house that's for sale not far from where I live, and they are touting the fact that they are an, an Amazon Echo. Um, integrated home. And I would use the trigger word, except my speaker's over here listening, and I don't want to set it off in the middle of this broadcast. But everything, lights, um, appliances, I mean, you tell the fridge to put milk on the shopping list, except the fridge already knows it because there are weight sensors that can tell when your milk is running out. I and mean, Google yeah. already knows it because it heard you say the other day to one of your kids, oh man, sorry, we're out of milk or, or this is the last of the spaghetti or we're going to need some more cheese or whatever. Yeah. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that we know these devices are always listening because they're, they're capable of instant on and the, the tricks that you do to get that to work are not hard. They're just kind of scary. And, and unless we can have some kind of verified capability to know that this is being thrown away, it's concerning. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that, you know, think about it, people with a Nest thermostat. If your Nest account gets compromised, or as we've heard by some people, when a, uh, a vengeful ex-partner decides they want to mess with you and they're constantly turning the thermostat up and down in your house – you know, turn it down to 55 when it's in the wintertime and turn it up to 90 in the, in the summertime and kind of cause environmental hacking, as it were. How do you stop that? I mean, I know how you stop it. You kick those people out of your account. But, I mean, th these are these are tech solutions, right? Stephen and I are both really smart technical people. My mom doesn't know how to kick people off of her account. She barely knows how to log into her phone. Yeah. And frankly, the companies haven't shown any interest in long term maintenance of these things and, you know, uh, closing security holes. In fact, um, a lot of companies are letting them lapse. Um, this reminds me of another story that we heard about this week. Um, so uh, it was announced that Apple is going to have, um, you know, uh, AirPlay and so on on Samsung and Vizio TVs. Uh, Vizio has 
well, the world's worst record when it comes to protecting consumer data. And even, even as late as, oh, I don't know, yesterday, the president of, Z of, of Vizio literally came out and said, we're planning on making money after the sale of the TV to make up for the margin that we're losing by aggressively competing in this market. It's like, mm -hmm. how do you make money after the sale of a TV? Hmm, let me think about that. You're still sharing consumer data, aren't you? Well, Apple yep. says they're not going to share that data, but um, good for you, Apple, but bad for you, everyone else. Yeah, that's one of the things I was looking at when I went to go buy a smart TV over Christmas is they had great deals if you wanted to use the Amazon Fire TV. You know why? Because your TV is constantly running Amazon ads. Yeah. I mean, I don't care, but somebody might. And yeah, there was a Gruber had a great uh, article on Daring Fireball where he made a comment about the fact that, yeah, the only way that these people can compete at that razor thin margin is counting on a revenue stream after the fact. And then, of course, we find out in two years that they're going to stop supporting the, the software that's installed on them anyway, because it's too complicated to make the new version of the Fire OS work with that TV. So you know what? We're done. Move on. I mean, yeah. I've got a Roku over here that works perfectly fine, except for the fact that it can't display the newest UI for Netflix. But you know what? Maybe that's okay because I don't want to see five thousand ads. Um, and you know, in terms of 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 updating, I mean, I, not to end this on the lowest note possible, but I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Um, get this. So, um, uh, as late as 2009, a little company called Mercedes Benz designed their cars to use GPS signal to, syn to synchronize um, the clock on the dashboard. Um, they are no longer supporting that as of November of 2018. So that's literally less than nine years since somebody spent a huge chunk of change on a very expensive car. And they've let it be known that they've got, it's basically a divide, it's a, it's a, a, a it can't handle more than 999 as the date field. And so the clock is reading wrong on every Mercedes sold with this system, which is basically every Mercedes in a couple of years that has a mechanical clock. They're not going to fix that. They've said that to, and this is, this is a diamond company with diamond customers that spent hundreds, hundred thousand dollars plus on their product they're not supporting it. If Mercedes won't make the clock work, why do you think that Vizio or D-Link or Samsung or whoever is going to make your IoT toaster secure? They're not. Also, shame on you, Mercedes. <laughs> well, I think that we can probably take Mercedes to task in future episodes, just like we do our friends Larry Ellison and Mark Zuckerberg. And if you want to take Mark Zuckerberg to task, you definitely need to check out the Gestalt IT Rundown, which happens every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Standard Time on Facebook, where you're watching this now. Or if you're watching a recording of it, you're probably seeing it on Facebook, on YouTube. So head over to the uh, Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Gestalt IT. Give us a like. That way we can continue to uh, reap the benefits that come from all of those beautiful likes that you give us. And if you missed any of this episode, we apologize because you should definitely go over and check out our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Gestalt IT. Um, we put these episodes up right as soon as after we're done with that. 
Um, we also, you know, you can check out our previous episodes, um, try to count the Larry Ellison jokes. We, we really enjoy that. Um, and you can interact with us live. Uh, we've always get some great content comments and we get some great uh, feedback from the viewers that we have out there. So keep those coming because that's really what makes this show is our audience. And if you want to great, see more great content from us, um, please head over to gestaltit.com. We've got a lot of great articles that are going to be coming out the first part of the year, uh, coverage from our previous Tech Field Day events, some thought uh, pieces going forward about the coming IoT apocalypse and how Steven's going to be buying me a Mercedes for my company car. Steven, if people want to learn a little bit more about what you're doing, why can they check you out? Uh, well, they can check me out right here. I mean, look at me. But the better way to find me would be to go to Twitter and just look for S. Foskett. Um, you can also find me at blog.foskitts.net, but more likely you'd find me at gestaltit.com. Yeah, and if you want to find a little bit more about me, you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Networking Nerd. I write regularly on networkingnerd.net as well as gestaltit.com. There's a lot of great content that you don't want to miss there. Um, for Stephen Foskett, for Tom Hollingsworth, and for our beautiful producer, Rich Straffolino, for the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Static Electricity Day. Have a super sparkly, shocking day. <laughs>